I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 48 on August Durlis, The Lurker at the Threshold. I'm Jeff, and with me is the great old one, Hoy. Howdy. And our special guest today is the co-host of the Any Award-winning podcast, Miskatonic University, and the author of numerous Lovecraftian adventures and supplements, including The Night Door for Call of Cthulhu, Shadow Under Devil's Reef for Dungeon Crawl Classics, and Transatlantic Terror for Age of Cthulhu, among many others. I'm, of course, referring to John Hook. John, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, guys, thank you for having me on today. I'm really excited to talk about this book. All right. So, John, how did you develop your passion for Lovecraftian gaming and fiction? <clears throat> well, I was introduced to uh, Lovecraftian fiction through gaming. Uh, so when I was a kid, a friend of mine had the first edition Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. And he introduced that to me. And, and uh, so he was primarily the keeper. I was a player. And uh, I my characters always had a very... Uh, Indiana Jones flair to it. We were playing very pulpy uh, even uh, uh, back then, of course. Uh, not as much investigation, more uh, kicking indoors and trying to take names. So, uh, <laughs> but was, it was it was fun. We had a good time with that. That was the two inch box, right? The two. It is, yeah. It's a two inch thick box. And uh, years later, I uh, started collecting it, so I've got several of the uh, box editions to include that uh, two inch thick. Uh, first edition, I've got the second and third, you know, so mm-hmm. I've, I've got all those. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't games. have a second, but if I, I convinced my friend's brother, who was our main GM, I'd read a review of Call of Cthulhu in, I think, Space Gamer, and it had those great uh, black and white uh, illustrations in there. And so I talked him into buying it for us, and that was the, you never we never looked back on that one after, uh, afterwards. That's so good. That's so really good. cool. Yeah. Now, John, was Call of Cthulhu your introduction to gaming, or had you already been playing D&D and games like that prior? I was already playing, so um, I think it was probably Christmas of, I want to say 78, uh, I got, uh, as my first role-playing game, the uh, uh, Dr. Holmes Blue Box edition of Basic D&D. And I think I already had uh, the Player's Handbook, I think, you know, the uh, Advanced D&D, you know, uh, Player's Handbook and Monster Manual as well. But, uh, yeah, that... uh, uh, 78 was a uh, kind of a big year for me as well, because, uh, prior to that in the summer between the fifth and sixth grade, you know, during summer break, my family, we went on a, uh, uh, family vacation. We were going to go camping or whatever, driving across Texas. And I remember we stopped and I, uh, convinced my parents to buy me a slip box, uh, that had, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit. So it had all four books in, the, in a slipcase. And I still have that to this day. And it was in that summer I read the Hobbit and I was just captivated, loved it. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so then that Christmas I ended up getting, uh, the D and D box 
basic box set and just, you know, kept playing from there. I remember buying all my D&D materials from uh, Walden Books in the uh, in the mall. That's mm-hmm. that's where I bought my stuff. So I remember a number of my friends got it at KB Toys back in the sure. day. Um, so that would have been roughly three years later, I guess. I think Call of Cthulhu was 1981, I think, thereabouts. That's so, right. So had yep. you become started to become aware of Lovecraftian themes, either through deities and demigods or anything like that before playing Call of Cthulhu, or was it not until Call of Cthulhu? Um, yeah, you know. I and I did have the uh, first edition uh, deities and demigods uh, that had all the different uh, uh, mythos in it to include the Cthulhu mythos, and it had... Uh, uh, the Melbonian uh, uh, gods and a bunch of the others. Um, but I still wasn't really aware of what Call of Cthulhu was. Uh, I didn't know who Lovecraft was. I hadn't read any of the literature. It wasn't until uh, my buddy Robert um, got Call of Cthulhu, the first edition box set, and he started, you know, taking us through these different adventures. And honestly, I don't remember. Uh, well, we did the haunting. Uh, which is, uh, it's been the almost a rite of passage for anyone who plays Call of Cthulhu. You kind of go through the haunting. But I remember playing the haunting, and I think we played a couple others, but mostly Robert, was, who was a very imaginative uh, guy, he, he just created these different adventures, and we would go through that. I still remember uh, it, exploring some weird house that, you know, on a house on an island and we were in a shipwreck and, and our, our, and the debris that we were clinging to washed up on this island. So we find this house, nobody's home. We start exploring it and oh my gosh, there's uh, serpent men living in caves underneath. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember the adventure ending when the serpent men had been chasing us up and I went to the second floor and there was a chandelier hanging over this large, you know, area and there was a giant window and there was the outdoors and there was like a dinghy or something out there and all my other friends had made it outside but i didn't make it and i got kind of trapped and so i did the indiana jones thing where i i leapt across and grabbed the chandelier swung through the the giant picture window to land outside and then i was going to run to the dinghy and i made all these skill rolls and i leapt and i swung and i jumped and then when i landed apparently i broke my ankles and so i i had two broken legs <laughs> as my buddies are running away and i get <laughs> i get swarmed by sort serpent men as my buddies escape in the dinghy as i well that was the end of that so <laughs> nice <laughs> so now the appendix n as a concept you know the appendix n has has your your love of tolkien in there it has your love of lovecraft in there when did you first find out about the appendix n uh you know i started exploring the appendix n i mean i kind of again knew about it from the uh dungeons master guide and i saw it in a i wasn't I wasn't as uh, motivated to be a reader uh, when I was a kid, but really after I, I, I was in high school and I was getting ready to transition and uh, uh, I joined the army right after high school, but I, I wanted stuff to entertain me and I really started picking up uh, uh, more books uh, mm-hmm. as I got older. Uh, so yeah, I started picking up as much as I could with Lovecraft. I used to collect those Ballantine uh, uh, books that had the, uh, really cool black and white and gray mm. art. Like the Whaling covers. Yeah, the Whaling covers. With the little splashes of red on there. Little, little touches of red. And yeah. I had, I mean, there was like six of those books, right? And I, mm-hmm. I had I had all of those in paperback, and I was just devouring those. Those are so. very cool. 
All right. Well, today we're discussing The Lurker at the Threshold. Hoy, what copy of the book are you working with this week? I have the 1976 uh, cover, the Murray Tinkleman cover, and it's actually got um, sort of black and white line art on the inside cover as well. Um, so that's Ooh. the one I have. And I remember seeing this one as a kid. And I keep on reading the title as the lurker on the threshold. Like, you know, some guy just kind of peering in through your door, but it's the lurker <laughs> at, the, at the threshold. Um, so, yes. So that's the one I have. How about nice. you guys? Well, today I'm working with the 1971 Beagle Books cover. Um, and my cover is falling off. Uh, <laughs> but it is the uh, Gino Dechile cover. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And we've got the stained glass window that's broken. You can see the tower in the distance, and there are some tentacles coming through the broken window. And John, what are you working with? I have the third printing of the Carol and Graf oh, edition. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, and it... Uh, it has a. I can't find the uh, the author or the uh, artist's name. It is a. I find a very uninspiring cover. I, I really, I love the additions that you guys have, uh, and I I will as a collector. I will definitely continue to look until I can find some better editions. But mm -hmm. this was certainly an excellent reader copy. Mm -hmm. Perfect. It has sort of a little bit of a. Um, early 90s sort of hell hellraiser kind of feel of the cover that you have i was there. gonna say yes. it looks like a like a knockoff clive barker yeah <laughs> yes yes it, it just it it doesn't and while that works for those books it just didn't work for me it didn't work for this book yeah so, so we will get into our discussion of the book in one moment but for now we're going to go ahead and look at our high gaxian word of the day Armidurus. And Armidurus is on pages 10, 12, and 87 of my copy, but I'll go ahead and read the sentence from page 12. It says, wait, where is that? Here we go. Okay. In the course of the speculation which grew, there came from the country around Dunwich one once more the tale of the noises which old Billington had brought about, and sundry other tales of somewhat sinister complexion began to be whispered about, though none could point to their source save none could point to their source, save only that they had come from the portion of the Dunwich country where the Waddleys and the bishops and the last of the few armigerous families lived in various degrees of decay and dissolution. And armigerous means bearing heraldic arms. So the three times we use the word armigerous is used to describe families who have a family heraldry. Mm -hmm. Just the implication that they're, that they're ancient, ancient families with deep roots, I guess, is the implication that he's trying to put across, right? Exactly. So now we can go yeah. into the library. Now, John, I was excited when I asked you to be on the show because I had just assumed you had read this before and turns out you hadn't. I hadn't. And I, I had assumed there I have a I can't really point the camera towards it, but I have a pretty large wall now of uh, appendix and literature and appendix and literature uh, neighboring uh, kind of books, you know, of that same time period and uh, similar authors and stuff. So I, I don't know. I've got, I don't know, maybe 250 uh, novels on the wall here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just assumed that it's one that I'd picked up 
and maybe hadn't read yet. And so I started looking and looking and looking. I was like, I, here's Durleth and here's Durleth and here's Durleth. I just did not have Lurker at the threshold. So I had to immediately go out and uh, purchase it. <laughs> and what'd you think? You know, I, uh, for the most part, I really liked it mm-hmm. uh, as a story. In fact, um, I loved the uh, the transition, the handoff that because uh, this story, uh, for those that are, are not aware, this story really basically has three chapters and each chapter is told through a particular character's point of view. And as the chapter is closing and it's going to go into the next chapter, there's a handoff where the character that we're that we're living through has a meeting with the next character. And so they have a little bit of a tete-a-tete. They, they talk to each other, and then that chapter ends. And as the next chapter starts, we are now in the eyes and experiences of the new character. And I found that transition that literary transition of character to character, chapter to chapter, I was fascinated. I loved it. I was so, I was so enthralled with it. It actually took me out of the story mm-hmm. as I was, you know, looking at the, at the way in which the book was written instead of just really absorbing the story. So hmm. I thought it was fun. I liked that. And were you, um, I mean, you have a lot of Duralith in your collection. Were you initially prepared to sort of dislike this story based on, you know, the sort of, I guess, controversy might be too strong of a word, but, you know, the the role that um, both positive and negative that Duralith has played in in sort of propagating Lovecraftian literature? I was. I was, pre- I was predetermined to have a negative outlook on this story, and I was pleasantly surprised uh, to not have... A, I, I don't have a high dislike for it. I actually have a really high admiration for this story. There are things about it um, that I would probably, uh, as a slang, uh, as as a as a as a derogatory form, call it Derlithian. Um, I think he was much too heavy-handed in his uh, uh, giving of 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 of, of the mythos books you know in the storyline these characters they have a wealth of mythos knowledge available to them that i don't think uh um the miskatonic university restricted collection uh, (laughs) at that part of the library has available to them there's just so many you know arcane books and things out there and it's just loaded into this uh, house and everything i'm just like I, I feel like Durlith was too in love with the uh, with the notion of the mythos and all these you know uh, strange books and everything. He was like, just keep putting them in there. Right, and right. I don't know if it really added to the uh, to the to the story. It was a little bit of a KTL greatest hits collection to a certain extent. <laughs> in terms, of- <laughs> he was. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there could have been. He could have pulled back. You could have you know maybe been more focused. On the uh, on the weird books that are in there, where the characters are actually learning about the uh, the strange uh, things that are happening in the in the woods by the house, it didn't need to have all those extra uh, books and stuff in there. And then the the one other major, I, I suppose it's okay to, to spoil these books, right? Absolutely. The, the one major disappointment that I had is 
throughout most of the story, we you know we're hearing from uh, from a historical standpoint about how people have been going missing, and then they they are later their bodies are discovered later, mangled and murdered, and all this, and and uh, and it's all off camera. It's all historical. But then as we get into the third chapter of the book and we are now experiencing the uh, the story through our third primary character who the third chapter is clearly the weakest of all mm, the chapters. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Um, we, because they moved the camera into that character and we're seeing the world through that third character, we don't get to see the death of our second character, Stephen. Right. It also happens off camera, even though it was brand new. His death was current. It wasn't something that had been documented in a newspaper clipping or something like that, that they had been researching. It was brand new and current. And what a missed opportunity Mm -hmm. to not have us be there to have that terror of being chased by the creature through the woods. And uh, uh, although, you know, Durleth did include um, that, that, that trope, that Lovecraftian trope of someone writing on paper, it's going to kill me. (laughs) Yet somehow the mailman still found it and delivered it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which also really cracked me up. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I agree with you completely. I feel like one of the strongest points about this is the transitions. And I also really like, if we look at it from a gaming perspective a little bit, I don't want to get too far into that, but I feel like this discussion kind of warrants a little bit of that. It, it's kind of at the moment where our main characters from each chapter have kind of finally failed their sanity checks and have become an NPC that we are no longer following them in the story and we're now moving on to the next to the, to the next main character. And I thought that was super effective because like once they've kind of like they've they've discovered too much, they really can't handle all of the stuff they're processing. So now we go to somebody who's now kind of from the outside seeing just how crazy they look now and how crazy what they're saying is. That was super effective. Right. What I also really didn't like, though, is by the time we get to the third section, we're now hanging out with Dr. Seneca Lapham, and he seems to know every single thing from every single story Lovecraft ever wrote. And he seems like cool and collected as can be. And on top of that, he's got his Elder Sign wristwatch, which protects <laughs> him from all evil things. And on top of that, he also, like... um um, gets his silver bullets, which who knew that silver bu- bullets worked against Lovecraftian b- entities, but he gets <laughs> his silver bullets and they just walk over and they shoot the two dudes and then story's over. Right. It's, yep. it's just, it was such a weak ending to a, a uh, really beautifully built kind of Lovecraft story. Oh yeah. The first yeah. two acts are, are really strong. I was um, like, like I think the both of you, I was sort of predisposed to say, oh, you know, we know that what Durleth has wrought upon, you know, the, the Cthulhu mythos. Um, but the buildup of the, especially the first chapter, or the, the Billington's Woods with the uh, Ambrose Dewar um, yes. protagonist, it was very effective. Um, it wasn't the sort of like, uh, here's the fan service of me mentioning every single Lovecraftian tome. Because really what you're talking about, John, a lot of that appears really almost in the last section, which we I think we all agree is the weakest. And in particular, even the whole shooting the villains, literally that was like the last two pages, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to all this very effective buildup. 
And what I liked, I also thought that um, Love uh, Durless prose in, in some ways was actually cleaner than Lovecraft's prose in terms of, um, you know, being able to follow the sentences and, and proceed with the sort of internal life of the characters. I agree. Yeah. I think even on the first page, there was I was so delighted in the very first paragraph. He says, what deserted houses had been left by the ravages of time bear a surprisingly uniform aspect of weather-beaten squalor. And even just something like that, that's just, it's beautifully written. It instantly evokes the image of where I'm at and well, what these what, what this character is currently exploring. Very effective prose, I thought. I did too. Uh, I had read, I, and I wish I had uh, archived it so I could go back to it immediately and, and use it as uh as a footnote, but um, I had read somewhere that, uh, uh, according to S.T. Joshi, that uh, this story was written, uh, of course, by Durlith, based upon notes uh, that Lovecraft had put in his uh, in his uh, commonplace book, and that actually about two thousand words of this story were written and contributed by Lovecraft himself. Oh. Obviously I thought it was a lot less than that. I thought I thought it was like just two tiny like like fragments and story ideas. Like I didn't think yeah. it accounted to that large of a word I, count. I had heard that they estimate that it's around two thousand. It could be it could be less. But then of course everything else was all Durlith. But it 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 almost feels like the Lovecraftian uh, contributions. I think maybe at the at the beginning. I'm I'm hypothesizing. Uh, it feels like. Uh, that it's more at the beginning of the book um, uh, with Ambrose's uh, chapter and only a portion of that, uh, because beyond that, uh, it, it just, it read more smoothly. Uh, there was, there was something really nice about the, uh, the way the language was put down and, and the, uh, and just the way that it drew the reader in. I, I really enjoyed uh, the way that the characters were doing their investigations and talking to new people, uh, finding out about that photograph and finding more about, you know, when he drove out to go and meet um, uh, that old lady Bishop. Yep. All right. All of that was so, so well described and so entertaining. Right. Sure. And his, think, his research montage at Miskatonic University, right, going right. through the old papers. Right. That's the equivalent of the uh, Kung Fu training montage, except <laughs> yeah. it was awesome. <laughs> um, so I think good. It's, uh, it's, it's um it's easy to forget, and and probably because of so much of Durleth's non-Lovecraftian fiction is no longer commonly available. That Durleth was actually the most acclaimed writer uh, in his lifetime of that whole circle. I mean, he was publishing you know regional non-horror fiction, you know, tales of the Upper Midwest, and he was writing um, Sherlock Holmes uh, pastiches with this character called Solar Ponds. It was a, a like Sherlock Holmes, except he would actually investigate the the occult as well. Um, so I'm definitely now more intrigued to see stuff where he's sort of more, um, he's let, not letting himself be straightjacketed by the sort of level of homage that he's trying to do to Lovecraft. And even so, I think he was basically was able to do a pretty good job of, of avoiding that straightjacket until the third section, which I think was, you know, where it just becomes, as you, as we said, you know, just more of just citing the greatest hits. And I don't know if he was under some kind of time pressure, but that's yeah, just, I, it was very rushed. That third I, I was wondering the same thing because that third chapter, it's, it's also the shortest. Yeah. And it feels like it was just rushed. Like yeah. he just, he just put it out there. Let's close this story's done and, and, and close yeah. the book. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also it was strange to have a story where essentially the good guys win. That that's that's pretty unusual. And yeah. also, I don't know, I, of the three of us on the podcast right now, I'm definitely the one who knows the least about the Lovecraftian mythos and has read the least Lovecraft here. I have read some, but I haven't read a ton of it yet at this point. Um, I, but I, my impression is that the Elder Signs aren't really a big part of Lovecraft's writing and that the, that if they are mentioned, they're certainly not as potent as they are here. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, I would yeah. say that's correct. Yeah. And in fact, I think Lovecraft does never actually even physically describes the Elder Sign. That is actually a Dorlethian contribution um, as it appears in this book. And in fact, this, in some ways, uh, Lovecraftian gaming, I think, owes more to Dorleth than to Lovecraft himself, at least as as it has been up till now. I know some people are sort of trying to reclaim the sort of very primal Lovecraft, but I feel yeah. like, you know, this one almost reads like a prototypical Call of Cthulhu adventure. In terms Absolutely. Of the, the uh, that, investigations. Yep, I say that is exactly on the mark, and I, and I agree. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu role playing game, as the concept of being uh, air quotes winnable, you know, where where uh, your your player's investigator has an opportunity to even have a conflict with the mythos and then survive, and maybe even you know right or wrong or solve a mystery or something like that, that feels very derelict to me because if these were all Lovecraftian um, role-playing games and, and it stayed true to the Lovecraft, it would probably only be one keeper, one player, and uh, they'd probably all be one-shots. Yeah. You know, there'd be no concept of a, of a campaign because uh, there would be no guarantee that your character would survive. So don't plan for it. Right. You know? right. And I, I almost feel like reading Asher Lovecraft, although he makes some references to some of the same deities, it's not actually necessarily even implied that they're all in the same Lovecraftian universe. Whereas Durleth was really trying to tie those, tie those strings together. Right. I think Lovecraft was just playing with some themes, but there was no implication necessarily that all of the stories were in the same. I mean, a, a few were. And exactly. And that was the piece that I was, uh, because I hadn't read uh, Lurker at the Threshold, that was the piece that I was uh, I was waiting for. I was waiting for, and I was waiting to, uh, and I was predisposed to not enjoy that piece. Was, but it didn't seem to come up. It, in Lurker in the Threshold, it, I don't have a memory. I don't think it doesn't stand out where they actually tried to highlight a pantheon that it wasn't like they were really trying to say here's the hierarchy and you know uh, this is above this and this serves that there was a little bit as far as like i think they talked about uh spouses and children of yeah um, and the elder but, gods versus the great old ones and how the great old ones also are tied to elements like air, um air water earth and fire yeah right. he said yeah. to a certain extent he did yeah he definitely didn't like become completely schematic the way that he has been uh, maybe like more Brian Lumley, who was a, a, a Durleth disciple really took that and ran with it. And I think Durleth didn't do that as much in this story. Yeah. Uh, he may have done that in his other fiction, which we haven't gotten to yet, 
But so I, think, I was I was pleasantly surprised that this one was it had a lighter touch as far as that was concerned. So right, it made right. it a little bit more enjoyable for me. Right, right. And also with Lovecraft, it really feels like while you're reading his stories that anything could exist in this world. Where when you're reading this Durlith story, it sounds like the the mysteries of the world are really confined to the limited number of mythos creatures we've already heard about and read about in the Lovecraftian fiction. And it feels like in this story, we're basically saying, yeah, these are all the things that you might encounter in the other world. Where in the the world of Lovecraft, it feels far more limitless. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, the, you don't know what's around the next corner with Lovecraft. Uh, but with Durlith, it's like we are this is the this is the sandbox. It's mm-hmm. the limitations have already been predefined. Right. Uh, and yeah. it's nice with Lovecraft that those limitations are not predefined. Right. And he was very specifically even saying that all these powers and the fact that the actual intention that he that we were dealing with was a human intention. It was a billing, it was, you know, why would one of these things want to bother to wreak vengeance on, you know, a mere mortal, right? It, it was, this was Billington coming back through through time, you know, and, and re, re-manifesting on this mm-hmm. planet. Yeah. Um, and, um, I mean, this is maybe, maybe when we read more Derleth, I think the other thing that um, Lovecraft was basically a materialist atheist, right? And as I understand it, Derleth was, you know, a Catholic. And so he was more... Uh, concerned with a schemata of, you know, good versus evil. Although, again, he's not super heavy-handed about it, but it is there, right? As opposed to in in Lovecraft, where things are defined as being evil because they're sort of antithetical to human life, but they're not intrinsically evil in the way that we understand it, you know, from a Catholic religion. So... Now, another yeah. thing about Durlith's writing of this story that kind of took me out of the story is I really like how when I read a Lovecraft story, it really feels like it, it it's it's out of time and place. You're really kind of in this world where the the decade that you're living in and the exact location of where you're at doesn't matter a ton because you're kind of so secluded from both uh, from both from the modern world entirely. But then here in my in my version of the story on page one one fifteen. There's a moment where, uh, who is this character? This is Stephen Bates. He's really freaking out. He's had a terrible day. So he goes upstairs and he opens up his favorite story, uh, The Wind in the Willows, with, quote unquote, those lovable characters, Mole, Toad, and Rat. And I'm like, yeah. wait, what? Like, where did that come out? Like, And it came right off of this like really kind of intense um a uh, very like high stress scene, and then suddenly August Durlis is talking about those those lovable characters, Moltoed and Rat. Right. right. He also mentions uh, Sherwood Anderson's uh, Winesburg, Ohio, in there. I think this is um, uh, Durlis, the writer, just trying to do a little sort of uh, Easter egg of his admiration for the other writers that yeah. he, he likes out there. And so, I mean, that, that's that seems to be Durlis' thing, right? He he's not shy about showing his admiration for various people. And actually, to be fair, Lovecraft and that whole circle were doing because they were always. You know, Robert E. Howard would mention some deity that was basically based on a Lovecraft thing, and then Lovecraft would turn around and put him, you know, Robert E. Howard or one of his characters into a Lovecraft story. So it was a little bit of a game that they played with each other. Sure, but never was a Lovecraftian character being like, I've had a hard day. I'm going to open up a Weird Tales magazine and read my favorite tale of Conan the Swordsman. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, 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 Lovecraft was more about creating a sort of um, a... a, uh, not a, not a mythology in the way that Durleth is. Durleth likes to categorize stuff, and 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 um, Lovecraft was more about flavor to me. Yeah, so that's that, that's the difference, I think. So this is a good time to go ahead and move this conversation over to the gaming side of it. So 
Both H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth are listed as authors worth reading in the Appendix N, and specifically people who inspired Dungeons and Dragons. And Lovecraft especially is, is cited as one of the primary influences by Gary Gygax on advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So, John Hook, um, I'm curious, what do you think about the Lovecraftian influence in general on D&D and kind of specifically what we may have gotten from this book? Uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know, I think the uh, uh, the weird monsters is, is um, the influence I see most in uh, D&D. Um, D&D is usually less as far as uh, the original uh, uh, adventures designed by Gygax and, and, uh, and those original founders for, uh, for uh, adventure modules. And I think a lot that came after as well are less about trying to uh, solve a mystery through uh, intelligence gathering. Uh, And it's more of a, uh, problem solving uh, through uh, application of force, <laughs> usually, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, uh, I think the uh, I think the mythos and Lovecraft's influence in Dungeons and Dragons is uh, pretty much with the uh, strange monsters, the concept of uh, alien intelligence, and uh, uh, the extra dimensions that come from that. Uh, certainly any of the, uh, the strange, uh, spells that may come, uh, with those, uh, creatures. Uh, I, I think that the, the strength of, uh, of Lovecraft's writing with the, uh, mystery that's being, uh, proposed to the, to the, uh, uh, protagonists and, and the, the, the method of going through in, intelligence gathering to try and, uh, becomes you know get more info to solve a mystery that was such a strong force in these books that i think it was just natural that uh a game like call of cthulhu was eventually uh created you know mm-hmm. spurning off of uh of the lessons that were learned from dungeons and dragons you were able to you know sandy peterson was was uh uh, an innovative trailblazer saying, Hey, we can do this role playing, but it, we can, we can, you know, try and, 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 um, confront these horrors instead of, you know, with a, with a sword, use a scalpel, you know, mm-hmm. and let's, let's get more book. information. Yeah. Or a book, right. I yeah. mean, you need to, you need to sharpen your mind as well as sharpen your weapons. Mm hmm. So from the gaming point of view, I mean, this since now we're talking about, I guess, Call of Cthulhu is still the quintessential uh, Cthulhu gaming. Do you think that that was ultimately the best um, match to the, the, the mythos? I, I mean, it seems like it's it's so influential. I mean, I can't think of another role-playing game other than Traveler uh, and then Dungeons and Dragons that has sort of this um, penumbra that's been cast out over you know the the, the sort of uh, history of gaming as much as Call of Cthulhu slash you know RuneQuest. So, well, it makes sense because those three are also yeah, the kind of the first big fantasy, sci-fi, and horror games, and those are right. also kind of the big 
um, speculative fiction genres. Right, right. But I'm just wondering, because now there's a lot of people attempts to bring Cthulhu gaming to other game systems. So right now, there's a fate of Cthulhu uh, Kickstarter going on right now that's wrapping yeah. up. And DCC uh, has its Cthulhu alphabet that's coming out. Right, right. And even even there's just a trillion Cthulhu games right now. You know, in in addition to Call of Cthulhu, there's um, Trail of Cthulhu. There's Cthulhu-esque. There's um, Finshu Cthulhu. Right, right. Dude, that Call of Cthulhu itself is still the best match for the things that are attempted to be to be done. I mean, there's been some modifications, but even Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition is still recognizably Call of Cthulhu. Right, as opposed to looking at, say, fate in Call of Cthulhu. Um, so I, I was when you say when the best, do you mean the best match for like this story? Or yeah, you know, we've talked before about you know, uh, like if you were going to do this scenario, what what game system would you do it? So does, do we think that Call of Cthulhu? I mean, I have my I'm, I'm sort of begging the question, but I'm just saying I have my opinion. But do we think yeah. that Call of Cthulhu the system or so, the basic role playing system is the best match for Cthulhu gaming? I. I'm biased. I, I do think that Call of Cthulhu, especially the uh, uh, 7th edition, I really enjoy 7th edition Call of Cthulhu. I think it is a an excellent match for this. Uh, but right on the heels of that, though, I think uh, Pelgrim Press's Trail of Cthulhu is very well designed mm-hmm. uh, because it is focused on um, clue collection. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 Achilles heel for call Cthulhu is when a character goes into a room and you search the room and then the keeper says, well, make a skill roll because for some reason the keeper thinks that, and maybe the module was written that way, but the keeper thinks that this character cannot get that skill unless he achieves that or cannot get that clue unless he achieves that skill roll. And I will tell you, nine times out of ten, despite what you think uh, uh, statistical odds are, that guy is going to fail that skill roll. And so <laughs> yeah. then, and, and and as soon as that happens, the keeper will go, well, crud. Right. Tell you what, you find it anyways, right? And I mean, they just give it to him anyways. Right. And Trail Cthulhu solves that problem. You don't have to roll and achieve a skill you just have to be in the room and and be a character who has that relevant skill which is you know that is also the achilles heel for trail of cthulhu which is if the characters if your party splits up you know trail of cthulhu is kind of cool because um you actually have a matrix that you put together ideally before you start playing and you've got a matrix that says, okay, Sue has these skills and Bob has these skills and Tim has these skills and we've got all every skill covered. Mm-hmm. And if all three of those characters go into every room at the same time, then definitely you have the relevant skill to find that clue. And the keeper is supposed to say, oh, Tim, because you're in this room, here's that skill. But if the characters split up and they go into different rooms, well, now, you know, rules is written, you know, gee whiz, I need Tim in the kitchen to find that bloody knife, but he's not there. So Sue's not going to find it. Right, right. So the same thing can happen. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I prefer uh, the Call of Cthulhu system. I prefer a, um, a skill-based 
role playing system and 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 I think just through role play and I think uh, as Call of Cthulhu has matured as a game system, especially into this uh, seventh edition, um, as a as a as a designer, when I'm trying to put uh, a mystery together. I am putting into my new adventures. I write them to where I will tell the keeper as soon as they come in, give them this clue. I've learned lessons from Trail of Cthulhu, and I'm trying to port them into Call of Cthulhu. And if it's a core clue, if it is critical that they have this, I give it to them. Or I might have this core clue have uh, layers mm-hmm. of information available to it. And right. so I'll tell in the notes i'll say you know if they come in here have them make a you know skill roll if it's failed or just base successful they get this information and then if they have other layers of successes deeper and deeper successes they can get deeper and deeper information i try and break it up like that so there is a reason to roll but there's also not a penalty for failure Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. I think that's the big sort of um, discussion. I mean, it's like an ongoing discussion about whether uh, skill-based games or, uh, you know, as opposed to traditional uh, first through second edition D&D, which are, you know, quote-unquote, you know, player skill-based, and they don't have an explicit list of skills. Um, so you have, they're more procedural. I, I do this, I do this, I do this. Um, so in the skill-based game, nonetheless giving the game master permission to say, hey, oh, you have spot and hit in this level, so that means you don't even need to roll because that's the kind of thing that anybody who is not oblivious would notice, right? Or uh, spot hidden is if you're just running through the room and you will notice it. But if you take the time to search this room uh, and you tell me that you're taking 10 minutes, 15 minutes to toss this room, you will find that clue, right? And then, uh, and then of course, the, the gumshoe system, their big uh, thing is that you get the clue. How you interpret the clue is still ultimately up to the player, right? And so that's the big um, distinction between... Uh, finding a clue and interpreting the clue. Right. Exactly. It's like, let's say there's a secret passageway behind the bookcase. And if I say, I'm going to go look behind the bookcase, is the keeper going to make me do a spot hidden roll? Because, I mean, what does it mean that if I failed that roll, what does that mean? Does that mean that I looked behind the bookcase and didn't notice the giant hole in the wall? Like- right, right. <laughs> right. So that's, yeah. So that's the problem with rules as written. And I think the seventh edition, as much as I've read, gives, uh, and say Delta Green, which is an offshoot of Call of Cthulhu, they give you permission to say, listen, uh, you know, this is again, uh, if, if you're under extreme stress, make the game the, the, the skill roll, or the skill roll indicates your relative level of skill. If you have a 60%, that indicates, for example, a university level of skill in a knowledge topic, right? So, you know, 100% you means that you're, or 99% means that you're one of the world's leading authorities in this knowledge subject, right? And so that's a, a relative way to gauge. Uh, what the player character might know, you know, sure. and to separate from what the players might know, because so much now players obviously have read so much Cthulhu mythos. There's no secrets anymore, right? You can't, it's not hard to find Lovecraft fiction anymore. It's all in the public domain, right? Um, Derleth, on the other hand, you know. And this is true but, of any RPG that has a skill system is you should, I, I'll say you should, um, I would, as a judge, I would only ask people for a skill check if the if there is a if there's a good chance of failure. If you're going to be trying something that if the way you're describing it would just I don't really see any reason why that wouldn't work, then there's really no reason to ask somebody to make a skill roll. Although it does seem like a lot of um, inexperienced game masters rely on that. Right, right. 
And conversely, some players will hunt for the skill role because in Call of Cthulhu, you have to actually have used the skill successfully in order to be able to improve it during the adventure. Sure. And so then I would just say, just mark it as you've used it. Don't make you don't make me go around and make you know roll skills that are obviously not applicable. Someone's like, oh, I'm going to use my mechanic skill to you know open the doors. No, the doors just got a doorknob on. It's not locked. Don't worry about it. You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's always that danger of that. And I think that as you as you say that there is a, a level of guidance. And as John, you were saying, because Call of Cthulhu, I think, is not really fundamentally different from the first edition. Uh, even with the seventh edition, you know the the stats you know, are, you know, on a one to 100 range, but really, if you divide it by five, it's still a a three to 18, you know? Um, So it's not fundamentally different. It's just, as you say, building on the um, collective knowledge of how these games have played out over the last 40 years, where things are easy to sort of drop through the uh, cracks, but fundamentally Call of Cthulhu plays the same in my mind anyway. So one thing I would love to discuss is I feel like Lovecraftian gaming has become more and more popular in fantasy gaming. Uh, and and kind of what I mean by that is the way that sorcery works in Lovecraft and in sword and sorcery fiction. I'm seeing more of that kind of style of sorcery in contemporary takes on Dungeons and Dragons. Things like this, the, the summon spell in Lamentations of the Flame Princess or uh, kind of how patrons work in Dungeon Crawl Classics. So I'm curious, do you guys have any kind of thoughts about how sorcery in this book worked and how that compares to uh, kind of sorcery and wizardry as we know it? The sorcery in this book I thought was uh, interesting because it was not a... um, an instantaneous spell. Uh, you know, the the summoning that was occurring in this book, it was a very prolonged, uh, it's a ritual. It, it's a, it took time, it took effort, it, there was um, um, physical components that had to be configured, you know, the tower, the standing stones, um, the, the environment. Um, uh, I got a sense that it was even seasonal, uh, so there was, you know, there was uh, a lot to that. Um, and I like that in gaming as well. I like, um, I mean, there's, it's fun to have the uh, instantaneous uh, combat spells, but I like the, I like the, 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 if you, if you pay more through blood magic time um components you know if you spend more uh energy uh configuring things so that it aligns with the stars i feel like those spells should have a greater impact in the game as well you know mm-hmm. if it takes if it's an instantaneous magic missile attack spell i i'm okay with that having uh low energy spent low energy output, right? You know, you're going to get your 1d4 damage on that. But if you were able to uh, prepare for uh, an assault, you know, some kind of of siege that was going to be uh, occurring and you, you know, perform a a storm ritual at the top of 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 a wizard's tower, I think it would be entertaining to at the end of a, an hour of ritual call down, you know, uh, 2d8 
bolts of lightning that are that are striking straight down from the storm clouds, you know, into uh, into the uh, uh, field of orcs that are attacking. Right. I mean, that there's something more cinematic about that. Right. It definitely gives it more flavor. And in, in particular, uh, sort of OSR Dungeons and Dragons style games, it's really important, right? Because we're always talking about this is the, the, the wizard's tower of such and such or the tomb of such and such. So why shouldn't there be more uh, arcane power imbued in that location? Right. And I think fifth edition sort of addresses this with these sort of um, layer actions for, for uh, monsters um, so that they have special abilities when they're in their lair that are not present when they're just, you know, as uh, encountered as a wandering monster. And so I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, and also, I think uh, you also pointed out something interesting was that there is the letters from uh, Bishop, who is a contemporary of the sort of the main of the, um, the second uh, of the wizards. And he's actually less skillful. He, he decides to get in on the action, but he realizes that that he's actually not done quite the right job. And he's writing letters saying, oh, but how do you help me help me put down this creature that I summoned, you know? Um, so that there are clearly levels of skill with the wizards. So I think that's also fun to sort of address like, oh, this wizard is legendary for their skill at such and such summoning. And mm-hmm. this guy, you know, he thinks he's a pretender to the throne, but, you know, ultimately he doesn't know as much. So I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. I like how his letters were basically left unanswered. Like, the, <laughs> you know, uh, what was it? Uh, not uh, not Ambrose, uh, uh, but the, uh, the, the other wizard just... Wouldn't answer the letters and right, and, Elijah. And, yeah, Elijah, yeah, yeah Elijah. <laughs> just uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deal with you right now. Uh, you, you let that creature go ahead and eat on you, and then I'll take care of it afterwards. Right, right, right. <laughs> Early 19th century cancel culture. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that this this story is a really great example of sanity checks in literature. Um, I know it definitely exists throughout Lovecraft's writing as well, but I think Durlith really latched onto that in a way that I think is very gameable and very much felt like I was reading, as we mentioned before, this kind of feels like a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Uh, this part felt like that was taken right off of these pages. I agree. I love the scene uh, when Stephen is trying to spy on his cousin who is now uh, fully possessed by the spirit of Elijah Billingsley, Billingsley, and is uh, and is trying to uh, reopen the gate, and uh, and of course the house that they were in had that really strange window, which I really wish there was more on that window. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he gets up onto the onto the bookshelf and peers through the only uh, clear glass since the rest was uh, colored, you know, like a like stained glass. But he, as he peers through that clear portion of the glass in the center, he sees an alien landscape. And it just it just rocked his mind. You know, it, he was he was uh, taken to a to an alien world. He he didn't understand what he saw. And the vision was only broken when he stumbled from where from his uh, precipice and fell back to the ground, you know, but it was a it was a great description of sand loss you could actually feel the sanity being lost i also felt like there was a sand loss in the first chapter when um uh, elijah uh, or ambrose i'm sorry uh, when ambrose um it's almost like elijah was just starting to kind of get into his psyche and ambrose is exploring that tower that was in the woods and he found that stone and he 
even had the instructions, don't move the stone that covers the, the door to time and space. <laughs> and and he's thinking about that as he's chiseling away at the at the the grout and everything, and finally that the the stone with the uh, uh, the elder sign comes free and falls to the ground. And and I'm thinking to myself, are you crazy? Why are you doing that? And it was just <laughs> his mind wasn't with him as he as he's just chiseling away at this thing. Yeah, it's like he's doing it, but he's somehow justifying in his brain why he's doing it, although he knows he shouldn't be doing it. Yep. And in that final section with Dr. Seneca Lapham, on page 148, it says, I have read such things as mortal man is not meant to know, such things as would blast the sanity of any imaginative reader. So, you know, we've got our, our little kind of Mary Sue, who knows everything at the end, uh, with his like uh, 110 sanity uh, stats. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Ugh, right, that ending. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's, it's it's just, um, and unless we w- w- warn people off, I mean, again, I, I still feel like the first two thirds or even four fifths of this book is phenomenal. I love the bits where he's reading the um, the diary of the young son, mm-hmm. you know, who is like 11 and he's talking, yeah. talking about, you know, he's walking through the woods with the the uh, Quamas, the Indian sort of aid slash servant to Elijah. Uh, and so the son is sort of kind of aware of stuff. He's kind of preternaturally aware, but he's not, he's not, um, you know, mystical in any way. He's just like a really bright kid, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of aware of this stuff. Um, so I thought that there's, there's some really effective stuff and it's just the build up, is. you know, just let down by that, like, okay, now we, you know, now we got to resolve this. And again, I really don't know what the pressure was because it was a novel. It's not like it was a short story that was being written, to be published in, you know, Weird Tales, as far as I can tell. So, you know, I, I just don't know, you know, why he couldn't quite stick the landing. Maybe so. he was under deadline. Yeah. 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 There could have been a deadline. He may have just been tired of it. Who knows? Yeah. He was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's like, I need to end this thing somehow. Okay, fine. They'll shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> and the um, silver bullets, I, the silver bullets, that just threw me. I'm just like, what, yeah, that was so silly. What's with the silver bullets? And, right, right. Yeah. But I agree. There's a there's a lot to like about this story. And one of the things that I found really effective was the use of the bullfrogs. And I thought mm-hmm. that that one moment that was super creepy about it was when he was talking about how um, it's not like one bullfrog sort of croaking and then another joined in. And then slowly over the course of the night, the bullfrogs were, were croaking. It's like at one moment, all of a sudden, Boom. in chorus, all right. of the frogs of the forest just started croaking. Yeah. Uh, that's a really startling and scary image. Right, right. And I think Durleth kind of must have known something about it. I think because, you know, he's always mentioning like whippoorwills and stuff like that. But he was saying specifically like he named the different kinds of frogs that were croaking and the fact that yeah. they were croaking out, out of season. Also, yeah, you know, out of that season. Was, that was also kind of bizarre. So I think like I think Durleth had a uh, had a little bit of a connection to nature um, more so than than Lovecraft. That So that he that was a strength that he was able to draw on. I, would I agree. agree. Hey, I agree. You can see that that strength of and knowledge of nature in uh, Durlis' writing. Um, the and another scene, you know, again with the bullfrogs. Stephen goes out and and uh, Ambrose uh, again. We you know Stephen doesn't realize it, although the readers we're just screaming at the book. You know, you're you're being you are possessed by Elijah. Uh, but as uh, Ambrose or as Stephen goes out to talk to Ambrose, and he's just standing there, just just 
absorbing the sound of the frogs croaking and he's he says something to the effect of yes they they know that his mas- that their master has returned and and he's just standing there <laughs> like he's like he's just listening to them sing to him his praises and i'm like this guy is crazy yeah <laughs> Well, we are running out of time. So, John, before we wrap up, is there any last thing that you really wanted to discuss or mention? Uh, first, I want to say thank you for having me on the show. I am a big fan Yay. of the Appendix and Book Club, <laughs> and to be on the show, is it was really cool. So thank you so much. Thank you, John. I hope if anyone has a chance, if you're uh, a Call Cthulhu player and you are looking for more uh, uh, adventures to play, uh, check out uh, on Drive-Thru RPG. Call Chaosium uh, has a subsection for um, self, you know, for creator-owned content called the Miskatonic Repository on uh, drive-thru RPG. And I have several adventures that are available uh, for purchase there. Um, there's one uh, that it's called uh, of wrath and blood. It is a sequel to the haunting. So the, the core nice. basic introductory adventure uh, that people can uh, play to kind of get into call Cthulhu. I wrote a, uh, a direct sequel for that. And it is out there of Wrath and Blood. Uh, and I have a new one that's out there called Spark of Life. And actually, I tried to make this one a little more true Lovecraftian. It is something I'm calling an isolated investigator adventure. So it is a one keeper, one player. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. And so just the, you know, those two, those two individuals will play Call of Cthulhu together. So. I'd also like to add that if you've not yet listened to Miskatonic University, the Miskatonic University podcast is a great place to uh, listen to people talk about Lovecraft and Lovecraftian gaming. So check it out. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. John, thanks for being on the show. Thank Thank you you guys. So episode 49 is going to be on Sign of the Labyrinth by Margaret St. Clair. And episode 50 will be on Hyperborea by Clark Ashton Smith. Hoy, how can folks get a hold of us? All right. You can always email us at at, at, uh, appendix, sorry, appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. If you want to look for us on Twitter, we're at at appendix underscore n. We're also on MeWe and Facebook. And um, uh, you can also check us check out our Patreon. Jeff, why don't you tell them all about it? Absolutely. You can go to Patreon slash Appendix and Book Club and support us there. We would love to uh, take a moment to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. Uh, thank you, Noah Green, Eric Johnson, Ethan Schoonover, Adam Alexander, Andrew Cairns, and Ray Otis. Thank you for your support. Thank you, guys. All right, see you in the next. Read on. The library is closed.